I think of Rashid Wallace, man, I mean, there's so many good things that I could say about him as when it comes to a friend, mentor, big brother. You know, it's just totally opposite of the, the way he's been portrayed in the media, the way people think about it. I'm on the phone with Bonzi Wells, a 10-year NBA vet. Bonzi played for five teams, but is best known for his years on the Portland Trailblazers, where he starred alongside Rashid Wallace. You heard from Rashid in the beginning of episode one. So taking a step back, talk about how you watched and learned about NBA refereeing from Rashid. When I really knew it was real, when we were in the 2000 Western Conference Finals, and you know, Rashid, he was just really like, I'm gonna be on my best behavior. And I just remember, you know, a moment Rashid looked at the ref and he, all he did was look at him. He didn't go at him in a blatant type of, you know, manner where the ref had to fear for anything. Rashid just looked at him and he whacked him, gave him two texts, ejected our best player out the game. Bonzi is not exaggerating when he said the referee, Ron Garrettson in this case, whacked him out of the game. Whack, get out, Steve. Get away from me, Steve. He didn't say a word. Technical foul, Wallace, he's gone. No, I asked him three times to stop staring at me to try to intimidate me. I'm done. He's gone. A technical foul, also known as a tech or a T, is a rules infraction where a player, coach, and in rare cases, someone in the crowd can be penalized for something that doesn't involve physical contact during the course of play. A referee has full discretion over what constitutes a technical foul. They can call it at any time for anything, but it's supposed to be used as a last resort. And he had been saying it all along, like every time the note section came out, he'd be like, let me look at the note section to see who's gonna be refing this game. And every time he saw certain names, he'd be like, we're not gonna win today. Either one of us gonna get two fouls in the first quarter, ejection, technical foul is gonna be something. I just never believed it. But when that happened, when that moment happened, when he whacked him just by looking at him, our best player, that's when I followed his lead from that moment on. So when you say you followed his lead, you mean you were just skeptical of referees from that moment on? I mean, definitely, because referees are human. And people got to understand these are not computers out there refereeing the game. These are human people that have human problems, just like we're human basketball players that have real-life human problems. But we always had a thing in our mind that what if there's somebody out there really, really trying to dictate these games and really trying to benefit off the outcome of some of these games? And we always said that. I mean, we didn't have any proof to back it up, but, you know, when there's smoke, there's fire, and that's what we always thought. It's some guys that'll give you text or an injection that you gotta respect them because we know we went too far. But it's some of these dudes that have an asshole to them when they tacking you and talking shit to you that you just can't handle in real life. Like, the refs are the judge and the jury. And they know it. And that's a, a heck of a thing to have behind you to knowing that you are the judge and jury and nobody's gonna question anything you say. We know what Donahue's hiding, but are there parts of this story where he's telling the truth? I'm Tim Livingston, and this is Whistleblower. Episode 5, The Defense of Tim Donahue. I mean, Perfect.com, we went, we did the whole betting thing. It was, it was dramatic, and it came down to the last second in the game. And that's how it usually happens. You lose, and you lose exactly in that way where they set the line. That's Doug. We dropped Tommy off at his home, and now we're in a frigid, kinda shady Airbnb in Brookhaven, Pennsylvania, 
talking about the game. And then to top it all off, we got to see a ref choose not to make a call, which was the difference. The loss was brutal, but the way it played out, the fact that our fate was ultimately decided by Scott Foster, it was also pretty poetic. Outside of the bright lights of Sarasota, Tommy didn't drop any more bombs about the scandal. But what I found most odd about Delaware County was its plainness. I guess I was expecting it to feel a little sinister. Mobsters lurking in the shadows, ready to break legs for unpaid debts. Delaware County, for the most part, was just boring. No wonder kids get wrapped up in gambling. There's nothing else to do. We're leaving Delco a little poorer, but we're excited about our next stop, New York, and our sit down with a key player in the scandal. It's quite a story when you go back and you relive it. I well, appreciate amazing. you doing that, yeah. first and foremost. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to be accurate, obviously. And there's some stuff that I think might be helpful. That's John Loro, a prominent white-collar criminal defense lawyer. Loro previously worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office and defended Donahue during the NBA betting scandal. The internet says Loro's in his early 60s, but he could easily pull off 42. And I don't know much about men's suits, but the suit he's wearing costs more than my whole closet. In the U.S. Attorney's Office, he prosecuted all kinds of cases, organized crime, international drug rings, you name it. As a defense attorney, he specializes in sophisticated white-collar cases. He never got to publicly defend Donahue in court, but now, almost 13 years later, Donahue's attorney is sitting in our studio, armed with 10 pages of talking points, eager to defend his client. I go to this restaurant. Tim walks in. I didn't recognize him. He was clearly emotionally distraught and at the end of his rope. Tim was in a confession mode. He wanted to go in as quickly as possible and make amends for what he had done. And ultimately, we arranged for a meeting in the U.S. Attorney's Office. We went down, and Tim spilled his guts about everything. It was an interesting meeting because I felt that they didn't have the case yet. And I was right. I've always wondered what would have happened if Tim had not gone in. The ultimate reason that the government was able to make this case was because of Tim Dunning. And without him, I don't believe they could have made the case. With Tim, he just laid it out. And he was very clear and very precise. I would say 90% of which the government did not know about. So here's the thing. At this point in the process, Donahue was the only cooperator in the mix. Acting as a confidential informant is, well, it's a fucking crapshoot. But there are also certain advantages that come with the territory. I mean, if the FBI catches you in a lie, you're fucking screwed. But you're also the only one laying out the story for them, right? So, if certain details can get you in trouble, just leave them out. The funny thing is, and this is a pretty important point, as a cooperator, you can be 100% honest without telling 100% of the truth. On the eve of trial, when Batista was going to go to trial, Tim had pled, Martino had pled, and Batista's lawyer made a very, very wise strategic move. He went public and said, Tim's gonna be on the stand for many, many hours. And we're gonna cross-examine him about everything that goes on in the NBA. A short time later, the U.S. Attorney's Office did a deal with Batista. 
which was the deal of a lifetime. It eliminated the most serious charge. It allowed him to plead guilty to a lesser charge. He did not have to cooperate. According to reports that we had gotten, there were high-level people in the Gambino crime family that had in some way profited off of what was going on, and nothing was done to push that issue or require cooperation from Batista. Whether or not he had that information, I don't know. No one knows. But at a minimum, and this is prosecutorial science 101, for someone in that position as a defendant, you press them and you press them hard. But for whatever reason, and I don't know the reason, the government, meaning the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of New York, refused to prosecute that case to the fullest. Nor did they share with the judge all of Tim's cooperation, including what Tim had to say about the culture in the NBA, the culture of favoritism, the culture of gambling, which he proffered and provided a great deal of information about. And none of that was included in the government's presentation to the judge, and I was livid. What Laura was saying here is that the government was going to build their case on Donahue's testimony. Was it the whole picture? No, but there was certainly enough to build a case around. It's Donahue's broader claims, though, about the culture of the NBA that make this story seismic. Because if proven true, they would fundamentally change not just the way we view professional basketball, but sports as a whole. Donahue and Laura presented a letter to the judge that claimed, amongst other allegations, that the NBA had company men referees and that those officials were assigned to the league's biggest games to ensure that certain teams won. Now, is Tim Donahue a credible witness? No. And does this seem a little far-fetched? Yeah. Until you watch the games. And that's the next step in our investigation and what I've spent the last eight years trying to grasp. Do Donahue's claims about these controversial games, these terribly officiated playoff and finals games, have merit? Is there any evidence to back up Donahue's claims besides my eyes and my gut? We'll get to the games, but Loro's description of Batista's plea deal is important because it's our first insight into the idea that someone behind the scenes might have puppeteered every outcome of this scandal. It's a lawyer saying in a lawyerly way that something was amiss. I have no idea how the decision was made. I have no idea whether or not there were communications from the NBA to the U.S. Attorney's Office. I raised that issue at sentencing, whether or not there were any communications. But in my view, the last thing that the NBA would have wanted is Tim on the stand talking about everything he had proffered on. That cooperation included how, in Tim's judgment and from Tim's viewpoint, the league was favoring certain players, was favoring certain marquee franchises, that in certain instances, refs were carrying out their official duties in order to achieve a result, favoring one team over another or one player over another. He laid it all out. And in my judgment, Batista's lawyer made a very wise decision by going to the press and saying, we're going to keep Tim on the stand for days, and we're going to ask him all of these questions. Well, I could just imagine 
the discussions that were taking place in the NBA when they heard that. Because Tim's credible cooperation would have been a full public airing of all the information that he had provided over the last year to the FBI and to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Batista, who they characterized as the leader of the activity, they treated him with the most leniency. They didn't require him to cooperate. They didn't require him to appear in a grand jury, to give statements under oath, nothing. They left the playing field. And in my judgment, it was a gross dereliction of duty on the part of the U.S. Attorney's Office. And to this day, I don't know the reason why. You know, I've been in this business for 35 years. It still doesn't make sense. So maybe somebody has a damn good answer. I've not heard it yet. But that case was a no-brainer. Loro doesn't say directly that the NBA was steering the Batista case from behind the scenes, but he certainly, at least in my estimation, implies it. I spoke with Batista's lawyer, Jack McMahon, who discussed his strategy in threatening to put Donahue on the stand. Not that I was a genius. I mean, it was just that anytime you're in a case, you have to try to leverage whatever you have. And you either try to leverage facts or, or witnesses or whatever you can to try to effectuate your client's best interests. And in this case, the only thing that I thought we had in leverage was I knew that nobody wanted this to become a circus because it could easily have turned into that. The NBA didn't want that. The government didn't want that. And that was my only ace in the hole here. So I figured that if I want to try to get any kind of negotiation, you got to leverage whatever strengths you have. The NBA, they have an image to uphold, and I understood that completely. If that would have gone to a trial that was high profile, that would have been all over the media. It would have just continued on with this negative information about the NBA for six months to a year. You have a guy that goes rogue like that and does that, you want to put a kibosh to it as quickly as possible and, and, and try to make sure that it doesn't get bigger than it already was. Uh, and so I made it clear that I was going to do it. And I would have, if need be. I mean, it wasn't just a bogus threat. That would have been our defense in the case. I thought I had a pretty good handle on the legal side of this case, but the idea that Batista's sentence was potentially influenced by the NBA, that's news to me. And really, when we talk about the NBA, we're talking about one man, former NBA commissioner, David Stern. Stern is undeniably one of the greatest commissioners in professional sports history, if not the greatest. He's also one of the most influential businessmen of the past century. David Stern was an outside counsel, lawyer type of guy, son of a, I think his father owned a Jewish deli. And he was a smart guy and he was a lawyer and they needed lawyers by then. That's Darren Ravel, a former ESPN and CNBC business reporter who's currently a senior executive producer at the Action Network. Rovell was a friend of Stern's and followed the former commissioner throughout his career. There really was not a intricate business model. It just, the business of sports really started to pick up then. Sponsorship deals weren't the way, it, you know, you needed someone who could structure contracts and you needed someone who could get, if people got in trouble, to figure it out because there were so many people on drugs in sports between 1980 and 1986. You know, these guys were relatively unchecked. So in the early 80s, it was that way. And David Stern took over as commissioner, I believe in 1984. 
And, you know, again, another perfect timing. Magic and Bird and Dr. J then ushered in the era of Michael Jordan. And Jordan coming in his rookie year, 84, 85, and really the new age of sports marketing that he brought with him and just how outrageous it was. When Stern took over the NBA in 1984, the league was suffering, close to insolvency. Stern expanded the game internationally, and today, the NBA generates almost $9 billion a year in revenue. He was the first commissioner in sports who was not a sports guy, right? Stern was a businessman from day one, and he's the first commissioner in that role. This is when businessmen started gravitating to sports, and David Stern was a product of that. And I think he was very well-read. He would read on technology. I think the old guard would just read sports and read the box scores. He would understand, and he would read all the stuff that business people were reading. I do know he was a stern man in terms of being a manager. There have been many employees who got a stern talking to from Stern. It was an appropriate last name. And, you know, he was very sure in his ways. I think if there's anything that he was missing, it was sensitivity to how the outside was talking. Uh, he would be very out of place today with social media because he didn't care what people said. He was sure of what his decisions were and his intuition, and whatever that was going to be, that was going to be. That very same day, less than a mile away from our interview with Darren Rovell in Midtown Manhattan, David Stern suffered a brain hemorrhage. He passed away a few weeks later on January 1st, 2020. Stern's business acumen was the stuff of legend. He was brilliant, a complete force of nature. When he passed away, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, and countless other members of the NBA community offered condolences and praised the work Stern did to revolutionize professional basketball. But there are two sides to David Stern. Here's what Laurel had to say about Stern's actions over the course of the NBA betting scandal. From the standpoint of leading a business in crisis, a brilliant tactician, no one's better in terms of telling the fans what was happening and providing full transparency, a terrible leader. There were systemic problems in the NBA that Tim highlighted, and those problems were not fully aired to the satisfaction of everyone, including the fan base. After all, it's the fans that drive the NBA not the players, not management, not anyone else. It's the fans. And for the most part, you would think that the fans want to see a game that is played honestly with integrity and doesn't favor anyone. That's one way of looking at how the NBA operates. Another way is, well, no, it's choreographed ballet. It, we really want to benefit certain players. We want to highlight certain players. We want to highlight certain marquee franchises, and we want to make a lot of money, a lot of money, quickly. And if San Antonio is in the playoffs, we're not going to make as much money as the Lakers. That could be a motivating factor. Tim certainly articulated that. And the NBA never fully and completely addressed Tim's honest cooperation. Instead, they vilified him. 
Stern, in terms of containing the crisis, in terms of his use of the media, in terms of characterizing Tim, just did a brilliant job as, as a tactician. One other area that to this day remains a mystery. When Tim went in and talked to the FBI, the FBI made a decision to disclose that to David Stern. So the only people who knew what was going on were the FBI, Tim and me, and David Stern at the NBA. The reason Laura mentions the three parties who knew about the scandal is because one of those parties leaked the story to the press. On July 20th, 2007, the New York Post broke news of the scandal with a massive full front page headline that read, Fixed, NBA ref in a mob betting scandal. The piece was written by crime reporter Murray Weiss, and it read, The FBI is investigating an NBA referee who allegedly was betting on basketball games, including ones he was officiating during the past two seasons as part of an organized crime probe in the Big Apple, the Post has learned. The investigation, which began more than a year ago, is zeroing in on blockbuster allegations that the referee was making calls that affected the point spread to guarantee that he and the hoods who had their hooks in him cashed in on large bets. Federal agents are set to arrest the referee and a cadre of mobsters and their associates who line their pockets, sources said. These are dangerous people the referee was involved with, the source said. NBA Commissioner David Stern is aware of the investigation and has a report about the referee on his desk, another source said. Within hours, the story about a corrupted ref was being talked about on every sports radio station across the country. Weiss's article detailed an FBI investigation into a referee betting on his own games, but didn't name Donahue. Hours after the story was released, however, Donahue's name was public, torpedoing his ability to spearhead an FBI investigation. Again, to this day, I don't know how it happened. Murray, in interviews, says he got a tip. He doesn't disclose who he got a tip from. I don't know if somebody in the NBA tipped off the New York Post, but I will say this. If they did, it was the most brilliant strategic move you could think of. The fact that it became public completely ended any ability of Tim to cooperate at a high level, and it, it essentially foreclosed a full and complete investigation. The bottom line is when Murray Weiss ran that article, the whole investigation came to a crashing halt because there's no way that Tim could have gone back into the NBA and talked to referees when this all came out. And that was devastating to us because once Tim made the decision to cooperate and confess, the only thing I had to work with was his cooperation and getting before the judge that this is somebody who recognized what he did and wanted to make amends. That's the only card I could play. And once it came out publicly, there was nothing more we could do. So I don't know who leaked it, but it turned out that from the NBA standpoint, there was nothing better than what happened. So wait a minute, it would have been brilliant for the NBA to leak the news of the biggest scandal in NBA history? How does that work? Based on what Tim had described, it was very likely that Tim would have interacted with referees and management 
in a confidential informant capacity. In other words, it wouldn't have been a public investigation. They would have sent him in, maybe made consensual phone calls, gotten more information. That's how you develop an investigation. As a confidential informant, Donahue would have wired up in an attempt to build a case that implicated several other referees and league officials. But it's hard to be a confidential informant if the entire world knows your name. As soon as the story went public, Donahue's cooperation meant nothing. So clearly, it was not in our interest to have this investigation disclosed to the public. However, it was, in my judgment, of value to the NBA because it would have foreclosed Tim from participating proactively in the investigation. So Tim and I are basically in a bunker right now taking incoming missiles. And finally I said, you know what? The truth has to come out and the only one who knows it is Phil Scala. So we're gonna subpoena Phil. Phil Scala, whose name you've heard throughout the podcast, was the FBI agent in charge of the NBA betting scandal investigation. We subpoenaed Phil. Phil is like a third century Christian Stoic. He takes virtue and honor and faith very seriously. And whatever Phil tells you, you can go to the bank with. So if he had testified under oath, we would have learned the reason. The government fought viciously and vociferously to avoid him testifying. And I think the judge made an incorrect decision, but she upheld the government's position that he did not have to testify. I asked Laura if he thought Scala would have corroborated what Donahue was saying about the NBA. I have no idea. To this day, I have no idea. I do know this. We'd get an honest answer from Phil, either one way or the other. He would tell it straight. After months of reaching out to Phil Scala, I finally got in touch with him, but he was hesitant to say anything more about the case. Also, Scala had absolutely no clue what a podcast was. We're going to continue chasing Scala. It's going to take some work convincing him to talk, but the fact that we've connected is a major step in the right direction. In lieu of Scala, we were able to connect with former FBI agent and Donahue handler, Warren Flagg. A 27-year veteran of the FBI, Flagg retired in 99 and now works as a private investigator and security consultant. He was Laura's right hand on the Donahue case, helping guide the disgraced ref through the ups and downs of being a federal cooperator. I was an FBI agent for... I've worked only criminal matters, okay? I know how to investigate cases, how to have cooperators cooperate, okay? Flag, a former college basketball player at Arizona, works out of a small office in Brooklyn, but conducts most of his business down the street at his favorite Italian restaurant. It's the kind of place where, if you try and take a picture, the three wise guys in the booth behind you might hide their faces and duck. That may or may not have happened to us. I'm sure, I was not in the early debriefings, but I'm sure the reason that they signed him up was because they wanted to wire him up to go after and get other referees on tape as proof. The fact that Tim had this information is one thing. It's another thing that you gotta make the step to make the arrest by actually having their voice on it confirming Tim's allegations. And in this instance, I can almost picture Phil Scala and his team 
talking, you know, listen, you got to be very careful here. We're going to wire you up. You can't talk to anybody. There are certain parameters that all criminal agents do. That never occurred because once Phil Scala went to the NBA and explained that they had a referee that was on tape in a organized crime case, the reality is literally the next day of that meeting, the Post has an article of a referee. Oh, the article didn't have Tim's name in it. Okay, I looked at who wrote the article. It was Murray Weiss. I have his number, call him Murray, and I start screaming at him. You SOB, you, you whore. I used every term known to man. He goes, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And I go, listen, you're obstructing justice. He, he went, oh, I didn't know, uh, you know. I, boom, hangs the phone up. On WFAN that day, bing, Tim Donaghy all over the air, and it was out. When I first saw the paper, and Murray Weiss didn't put the name in, I was too experienced to know that that had to come from the NBA. It didn't come from Murray. Murray would have put it in the article. Murray's that kind of person. I know him intimately, not, you know, I mean, I know him. So it, it's very important to read between the lines as to what happened. Every time I see him, we've sort of patched things over a little bit, but I always call him the nasty little, he knows, he got a, like a Pulitzer Prize for writing this article or something, he did nothing. He got called into the office by somebody in the post and they said, write this article. Just to be clear, Murray Weiss did not win a Pulitzer Prize, but the article he wrote did garner massive attention. To get the story from Murray's point of view, we made our way over to the CBS office building on West 57th Street in Lincoln Square. Sometime late that same morning, I received a tip that a NBA referee was under investigation by the FBI and that he may have been gambling or betting on games. We're crammed into Murray's small office in this very large building, hoping to gain some insight into where this story came from. After nearly 37 years writing about New York City crime, Murray's now a producer for CBS News. Here's how he remembers that day. And honestly, it was a fantastic possible story. So I made a call around to somebody I knew in the FBI in New York and asked them, hey, uh, have you heard anything about uh, such and such a thing? And the response was, you know, um, I'll get back to you kind of thing. And about half hour, an hour later, I got a call back. And the answer was, we really can't talk to you. I can't talk to you about this. So that sort of response led me immediately to believe that there was a story there and that there was some truth to this. So I called somebody I knew in Washington in the bureau. And uh, that was a pretty extraordinary call because that person didn't want to tell me what the story was, but he virtually confirmed the story was going on. And I was like, now it's like around 4, 4.30 in the afternoon-ish. And um, 
I'm like, oh my God, this is, you know, it's great. I mean, it's great. Because if I knew how big a story it was going to turn into, I might have been a little more intimidated by it almost. So in any event, the FBI got back to me and said that they may want to talk to me or somebody at the newspaper about the story because people's lives could be at stake if we reported it. To which I said, well, you just get back to me. But, you know, there isn't a lot of time here. So I hung up the phone and I called the editor of the paper. And I told him that I had gotten confirmation of the story. I said to him, however, that uh, the FBI had indicated to me that people's lives might be at stake. <clears throat> and I said, at most, you can give them one day, maybe two days, grace. And he said, I'm not looking to run this story a day or two from now. I'm looking to run this story in two hours. <laughs> sure enough, the bureau called me back, and now it was probably 5.30. And they said, they told me that they're not going to ask us to hold the story. So I sat down and I wrote the story up. It was printed that night on the front page of the Post. And I woke up the next day. My phone was lighting up from news, radio and television stations everywhere across the country, asking me about how I got it, where I got it, what is it, how big is it? What, I mean, it was an enormous story. One of the biggest stories of Weiss's career came to light in a matter of hours, thanks to an extremely timely tip. I knew the chances of Weiss revealing the source of the tip were slim, but I wanted to get some detail, any detail, that could help us discern where that tip came from. Did the tipster call, obviously it was an, an anonymous tipster, did they call the New York Post? How does that process work? They call you directly, they call the editor directly, who did they call? I don't, I don't know if I really want to talk about how we got that tip, but it, you know, it was a tip that came to me in the post. And that's about all I'll say about it. Is there a reason they reached out to the post specifically as opposed to ESPN or a sports outlet? There's no, you know, the, I don't, I'm not aware of any conspiracy theorists here on how or why a tip like this there's all kinds of speculation on motivations here, there, or anywhere else. I don't really know where the tip came from, to be honest with you. It was an anonymous tip. It was a tip that sounded not too good to be true, but uh, you know, it was a pretty amazing tip. With the FBI, it seemed like they wanted to protect an ongoing investigation. Yeah, they weren't happy. There's no getting around it. I would say. To this day, they would tell you they weren't happy that story got out when it did. And there are lots of people who, you know, to circle back here who think, you know, who leaked the story? Who leaked? Did it come here? Did it come there? Was it this? Was it the NBA? Was it somebody in the bureau? Was it somebody who was a target of that case? You get, you get an investigation into the newspaper and nothing kills it quicker than that. That went about how I expected. Weiss isn't revealing his source and, unfortunately, isn't going to humor us with any hints either. After the scandal erupted, Weiss continued his investigation and started asking questions about the NBA system as a whole. The biggest question for me was, of course, Donahue was the story, right? There was one NBA ref. But from my vantage point, 
that was only a piece of the question for the NBA. It was, it was sort of like what kind of systemic situation that they have here and what kind of checks and balances do they have. It's a gigantic business. It's a business that does involve gambling and legalized gambling. And you have officials who I l quickly learned were very close to certain ball players. They didn't like certain ball players. They traveled with them. It was like there's something wrong with this picture here. The culture Weiss describes and its effect on the integrity of the sport is what Donahue has repeatedly emphasized over the years. Weiss wasn't a basketball reporter. He was a crime reporter. And when he witnessed referees fraternizing with players and coaches, traveling with them, going to casinos with them, it drew a stark comparison to his years following local and federal law enforcement. I would say human nature is human nature. And I've, and I've learned this through watching, again, law enforcement, how they ensure that they have in, in their own in, integrity within their own departments. And that's a place where people are, you know, sworn to uphold laws, and yet they have human nature are gonna go astray. Um, they're gonna fall victim to temptations, they're gonna fall victim to their own weaknesses. So, you know, why would you think that in the world of basketball that people are people and that some of them wouldn't be engaged in something that they shouldn't be or they're favoring their friends? Doesn't that happen in all walks of life? is that, you know, you start looking at the system. What is the system in place? And, and you want to investigate the system that's supposed to protect the integrity of the game. And it looked like the system had systemic problems. The theoretical checks and balances for law enforcement simply didn't exist for NBA referees, which surprised Weiss, considering the parallels. I asked Murray about his thoughts on the architect of the NBA system, David Stern. It was clear to me that he would A, do anything to protect himself and the game, and B, behind closed doors, he was a pretty ruthless guy. And actually, while that may sound, you know, harsh and actually cruel, I say that with a bit of admiration too, because um, to run an outfit like the NBA is a big task. I guess if you're gonna have a crisis, you want somebody running it who's ruthless, <laughs> somewhat, you know, iron-fisted and would do all he can to protect himself and the corporation he heads. You know, I was told that, you know, he would do anything to destroy me if it helped the NBA. We reached out to the NBA and asked them to confirm or deny whether they were the source of the leak. We never heard back. But if the NBA did leak the story, and if Murray Weiss's article was a chess move by Stern to blow up an investigation, the question has to be asked. How far would the NBA go to protect its brand? How far would David Stern go to protect his business? Again, here's John Loro. All I know is that David Stern not only saved the NBA, but he transformed it into one of the biggest money-making machines in the country, single-handedly. Having said all that, Tim exposed, from Tim's perspective, the truth about what was going on in, in the NBA during that period of time. And what Tim was saying was never fully addressed. Instead, Tim was ostracized. No doubt he had done wrong. No doubt he had sinned. 
but he was providing information that needed to be addressed. If you believe that this is a true professional sport, and again, it's not professional wrestling or ballet. If it really is a sport, then it has to be played on an even playing field. What are the main questions you would want to ask Phil Scala? Number one was Tim telling the truth about how he perceived the skewing of the process. Number two, did it really make a difference who was refing a game with respect to the outcome of the game? Number three, were the referees and the NBA cooperative in the process? Or was there any effort to hinder the process? And then finally, why on earth did Batista get a deal of a lifetime on the eve of trial? Now, what Phil Scala told David Stern, I have no idea. But I would definitely suggest that you ask Phil about his conversations with David Stern. Let me say that a lot of this is historic, but it has enormous relevance to today because of the power of internet gambling and the amount of money that's at stake, the interests at stake, the nature of professional sports and its hold on society, and the expectations that consumers have when they pay money, lots and lots of money. I mean, just go to a, a game and you realize, you know, you're not just paying for the tickets, you're paying for everything else. This is big business. And the question is, is it being acted out fairly? And do we have trust in the integrity of the game as a game? And that's the core issue. As a basketball fan, I don't care about the business. I care about the game. And I don't want to watch choreographed ballet. I want to watch basketball. And the problem is, I don't have trust in the integrity of the game. I can't speak for all basketball fans, but I'll bet a lot of them feel the same way. The idea that the NBA influenced Batista's sentencing, that they potentially leaked news of the biggest scandal in the league's history to pin everything on the perfect scapegoat? If those things are true, and the NBA needed to control everything all the time, what would stop them from controlling the basketball games themselves? Next time on Whistleblower. I know that you appreciate a good conspiracy theory as much as the next guy. Was the fix in for the lottery? You know, I have two answers for that. I'll give you the easy one. No, and a statement. Shame on you for asking. I, I know, I I know that back. you think it's ridiculous, but I don't think the question is ridiculous, because I know people think that. But I think it's my job to ask you that. I, have you stopped beating your wife yet? So that's a David Stern response instead of what could have been three or four sentences of no, it was not rigged. And but then obviously, like, since he doesn't give that response, you're like, well, if it would be so easy to give a response that it wasn't rigged, well, it must be rigged then. The officiating in the 2002 Western Conference Finals, Kings Lakers, was questionable and questioned by lots and lots of people. Let's say. I'm not saying this, but let's just say, for discussion's sake, that game six was fixed. That's not a foul. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the main money is the TV money. Behind the NFL, the NBA is the most expensive programming. Is there a reasonable doubt that the refs just had a terrible game, that there wasn't anything sinister? 
if you go back and you watch not even the whole game that game is one of the saddest things I've ever seen in sports Whistleblower is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Whistleblower Media in association with Cadence 13 Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV Myself and Doug Matica are creators and executive producers on behalf of Whistleblower Media. Our co-executive producer is Colo Casio. Our lead producer is Alex Vespasted. Co-producers are Mason Lindsay, Matt Keller, and Paul Kasheri. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Cooper Skinner. Additional mixing by Devin Johnson. Original music is by Makeup and Vanity Set. Cover design and illustration by Mr. Soul. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer at UTA, Ryan Nord in the Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, Paul Anderson and Nick Pinella of Workhouse Media, Max Hacker and John Bagakis, the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Cadence 13, and to Michael Imperioli. Check out his new podcast, Talking Sopranos, wherever you get your podcasts. Lastly, thank you to Liz Livingston and Tali Ravid for your invaluable insights and for never letting us give up on this story. For more information about the podcast, visit whistleblowerpod.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, five stars preferably, and review. Thanks.